0: Late Night Conversations, Monday to Thursday, 10pm till midnight. Social Conversations. We are joined by our guest, Penny milner Smythe of Ethical Ways. Um, She's a workplace ethics and anti-corruption specialist. Penny's original studies were in a very different field, right? Neuropsychology. And tonight we are going to tap into that knowledge when we discuss the neuroscience of why good people do bad things at work. Why do good people end up doing bad things altogether. So last week, one of our A-teamers called in and asked if our discussion when we were speaking about sextortion and so on, uh, sextortion versus sexual harassment, and um, the the, the, the A-team asked, I mean, does it mean that we are implying that we should excuse unethical and criminal behavior in others just because they're in high positions, they're managers, you know, they they, 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 they may be heads of states, whatever it may be. And, and I can understand why this question came up, because we have often spoken on Raising the Bar about what causes people to act against their own better judgment. So to recap our goal um, is simply to promote ethics and integrity in all spheres of society, that's what we want to do, to raise awareness and promote understanding of the reasons why we, as South Africans, can be susceptible to wrongdoing. As the saying goes, I'm sure you know it, a moment's insight is sometimes worth a lifetime's experience. So tonight we complete our theme of why good people do bad things. A few weeks ago we had a discussion about ethical blindness, a kind of tunnel vision where we fail to see the ethical dimension of a situation we find ourselves in. And tonight we talk about the brain and the role it plays in our ethical discussions. Please join in on the conversation as an A-teamer. Ask your questions. Give us your experiences. The numbers are 11 714 You can send an SMS to 41391 or WhatsApp 0614-104107. Penny, thank you so very much for joining us. Good evening.
1: Lovely to be with you again, Patricia, and with the listeners. And very exciting to think that you're coming up for your three-year anniversary of the show.
0: Very, very exciting. Time flies when you're having fun and we're hoping for many, (laughs) many more years.
1: (laughs) The range of topics you have dealt with during that time is quite astounding. And I think the important thing about uh, social conversations and late-night conversations if they tend to be more in depth on the quick news items. It really requires that you engage with them. So it's a real tribute to you and the team.
0: Thank you so very much, Penny. And to have you on this journey has been an eye-opener, and it's absolutely amazing. So, you know, there's a lot that we know, but there's a lot that we don't know about the brain. And I'm so glad right, that yeah, one yeah. of your fields of studies was neuropsychology. <laughs> yes. So it makes it easier for me to ask these questions. And
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Is it possible that most myst- uh, the brain, it's possibly the most mysterious organ in our bodies, right? Because we know it's Coo- there, but Coo- we've Coo- never seen it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we don't really know how exactly. it functions. So exactly. Penny, take us through some of the typical myths that we hold about the brain
1: well that's um, an important uh, launching point for a discussion on ethics because um two things jump immediately to my Patricia. The first is that we tend to imagine that people are adults when they are eighteen um, and that's certainly the age at which you can apply for a driver's license for example um and it's the age at which you would enter tertiary education or finish your schooling. But the brain is only fully mature a lot later. And in fact, current research is showing that it might be as late as the early 30s that our brain reaches a point of what would be considered full maturation. So that's quite interesting. And the areas that we're interested in are the very advanced Uh, developmental points of the brain, those that are responsible for complex decision making. So I think that if I was an employer today of someone in their 20s, one of the things I'd be saying to myself is, this is a work in progress, this person. My role is to help this person develop their ethical awareness, their good judgment. I mustn't treat them as a done deal, so to say. So I think that's pretty interesting Um, that we need to see ourselves as a work in progress in terms Mm. of our our, our, our higher mental functioning and its development into our The next thing is that we tend to believe that the brain has infinite capacity. Uh, We tend to be told by teachers that our brain is a muscle and it can do as much as you expect of it. And it's not quite true because there are important parts of the brain that are very sensitive, they're easily disrupted, and they have limited capacity to fulfill their very complex tasks. And one of these regions is the area of the brain responsible for decision-making. It's an area that's easily disruptive, very uh, sensitive, and it means that we need to understand the conditions that can disrupt our good judgment, which would be a good thing to talk about.
0: Well, it seems the myths are things that, uh, you know, we hold dear to ourselves and I'm (laughs) sure we're going to demystify them. Now, are there particular parts of the brain, Penny, that are important for ethics?
1: Certainly, um, the part that is a region that plays a very extraordinarily important role in good judgment is what we call the prefrontal cortex. And this is the sensitive a limited part of the brain, and I say limited in that there is a limit to how much information and how many different thoughts we can hold in mind simultaneously when we're making a decision, when we're analyzing a situation. And the extent to which we're able to do that um, is very important. It's a part of the brain that helps us to um, block out distracting information and temptations it's a part that keeps us focused and it requires the whole brain to be in a state of, I should say, calm um, because the other part of the brain that is very relevant to our discussion is what we call the limbic system, which is um, a region or a number of regions that together are responsible for many functions, which we could summarize as being kind of threat detectors And the parts of our brain that really are responsible for keeping us alive and the survival of the species, so to say, they are the parts of the brain um, that are receiving information about our environment and looking out for threats and and that cause us to take very quick action in order to protect ourselves, not only in situations of physical danger, but in situations of psychological danger as well. So it's these two regions, one that's essential for good decision making and the other that has got the capacity to completely disrupt it through a fear response um, that, that are good to talk about. So let's go to the workplace.
0: What are the circumstances that uh, in the workplace that might you know disrupt good ethical decision making?
1: Right. Um, people may have heard of the term that's used a lot these days, but it's a very important term of psychological safety. What I'd like to talk about, I guess, is neuropsychological safety. What are the conditions in which people are most likely to exercise good judgment, to be in their right minds? Now, what we know from imaging studies, neuroimaging studies, today is a lot more than we knew even 10 years ago. And we do understand now that psychological fears and stresses have a huge role to play um, in activating that disruptive uh, limbic uh, region. So we now understand, and I'm just going to summarize this um, for the purposes of our discussion, that there's certain psychological experiences that put us in a state of agitated, high alert, that mean that our energy is taken more up with um, monitoring threats and being defensive rather than thinking straight, if I can put it simply. So what are some of these psychological situations or experiences? Well, they're quite interesting. The ones that fascinate me the most are that feeling disrespected and unfairly treated. Feeling as if we are being treated um, in a way that doesn't have regard for our human dignity, that makes us feel worthless. Feeling that we have got no influence over our circumstances and that we have to do um, what others tell us to do without any personal agency um, and feeling humiliated. These are circumstances that cause us to be um, or experience a lack of psychological safety, which can have a direct impact on the amount of bandwidth, you can call it, that we have for good decision making.
0: All right, let's go for a quick break. And when we come back from the break, I want us to talk about the impact psychologically on 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 our brains when it comes to money in the workplace. Oh, because now you've right. spoken about the emotional side, the mental yes, side, um, and sometimes it's not that. Sometimes you just feel you're really not getting paid enough, and here's an opportunity. Pop goes the weasel. But let's talk about it after the break. A team is joining on the conversation. We are raising the bar and uh, talking about you, what happens in our brains. What happens in our brains for us to end up um, doing something that is corrupt in the workplace? Why are good people doing bad things, even though they are good people? Zero one one seven one four two double zero six or WhatsApp zero six one four one zero four one zero seven. Late Night Conversations Social Conversations We are still in our social conversation uh, with uh, Penny milner Smith of Ethical Ways uh, talking. um, Ethics, raising the bar. Why do good people do bad things? Penny, we just got a message from an A-teamer. And um, this is what it says. It's from Isaac. Isaac says, good evening, Manduli. An author by the name of Lord Kilmer once said that the more you rev your mind is the more it becomes capable of climbing higher hills, meaning that you cannot overwork your brain. This makes me to ask your guest one question. The difference between the brain and the mind. Is it true that the mind cannot be overworked?
1: Wow, Isaac. Profound question and so important. The brain can definitely be overworked. The brain, like other parts of the body, is dependent on uh, energy uh, that we take in. And so... It is perfectly possible for us to be in a situation where we are depleted in terms of energy. For example, let's say we haven't eaten for a very long period of time um, and the brain um, is lacking in glucose. It can be exhausted. We know that some parts of the brain that I've been talking about, the decision-making parts of the brain, do have the capacity to be disrupted. So I think the important thing to do is to understand that there's some abilities, for example, our amazing ability to memorize information that are probably limitless. And certainly as it's right, the more we do things, the better we become at them. And this is really thanks to our friends, <laughs> but it is not the case that the capacity is unlimited. Um, And, of course, when we're talking about our minds, we're talking about our thinking processes. And our thinking processes are notoriously vulnerable to being hijacked, again, by emotions, by fears, and that certainly uh, places constraints on them. Mm. But I think the important thing to remember is that we are able to um, develop our brain throughout our lifespan. Um, It's not a case that... They're going to immediate decline once we turn thirty-five or forty. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so you were going to ask about yeah, money. I was asking about
0: money. So you spoke about how you know psychologically and uh, certain emotional you know um, responses can lead one's brain to end up you know making the wrong decision. So money. Money. You find yourself right. not feeling um, well num- uh, remunerated mm. in the mm. workplace and you work with money or you have an opportunity to be able to mm. make some money in the workplace unethically, mm. but it, it it wouldn't harm anyone. That's what we usually say. Oh, no, it's mm. going to get harmed. It's just a bit of a, a deal here, a deal there, just so that I can pad myself sure. up
1: financially. So let's talk about... Um, linking our um, discussion before the break about the brain to this uh, scenario. Um, One of the things that we know is that it's very difficult for people to sustain a situation of feeling that they're in a work environment that is psychologically unhealthy, that creates fear, where there isn't that sense of psychological safety. The tension is very hard to maintain. And what do people do in response to that? Well, they can. Um, you use the terms just at the start of the show, fight or flight. I think, and, and that's quite right. Here, you can flee, you can leave the work environment. Although, not everyone is in a position to do that. You can fight back, um, which is not really a great way to have a long-term relationship with an employer. So, what do we do in the workplace? We tend to freeze. We tend to go numb. Um, We kind of go through the motions and keep doing what we have to do, but we um, stop caring as much. Uh, We can't bear the disillusionment. So in that moment of freezing, of becoming disengaged, what happens is that we tend to stop caring about the best interests of the employer and we also... Uh, are more likely to pursue our fight response in a covert way, which would be balancing the books. Um, so, certainly a person who's feeling agreed, and um, who feels a need to balance the books one way or another, stuck in their job and seeing this opportunity, may be more vulnerable. But one of the other things that's really important to understand is that fairness really is a fundamental need and the brain finds a lack of fairness, a disruptive reality. And when it comes to pay and remuneration, this is one thing employers really need to get right. They need to be paying people fairly in relation to each other. I might earn much less than you do doing the same job in different companies, but if I'm being paid fairly in relation to my colleagues in that company, are more likely to have a sense of fairness and not want to take it out on the employer, for an example. I'm not sure if that is a multi way of answering
0: your question. No, I got it. Absolutely. Um, so there's clearly um, a, a, a big link between the way we feel at the workplace, what we are remunerated, um, how we interact with the senior management and the work environment that could impact on good people doing bad things. How can we avoid it? How can we avoid our ba- brains doing the wrong thing?
1: Exactly. And we need, we need managers and supervisors to be leading people in a way that creates a psychologically safe environment, an environment in which people will feel engaged, are not permanently in a defensive, back-footed, fearful mode. Um, and a lot of this goes to the social environment we create. We need people to feel that they belong, to feel and know that they are fairly treated, and most importantly, to treat them with respect and dignity. And when we do that, we create the kind of environment in which people will speak up. We've spent many weeks talking about speaking up and whistleblowing on the show, Patricia. Well, this is what we need to do. We need the brain to be in a state of psychological safety for people to speak up, to be able to um, sustain a feeling of Uh, commitment to the employer's best interests. And when that is lost um, because of feelings of injustice and unfairness and of, of treatment, that is when we find good people doing bad things at work. So
0: it, it, any one of us can fall into that trap if we are not aware, but thank goodness for these raising the bar sessions that we've been having over the weeks. They are really opening up our eyes and our brains are now going to be very conscious of everything and all our responses when it comes to the workplace, Penny. Great.
1: That's wonderful, Patricia.
0: Now, as we close up, what are your um, parting comments on uh, good people? doing bad things at work, and how the brain also impacts on that?
1: Well, I think the first thing to understand is that there is quite a distance between us at our best and us at our worst. We are susceptible to adverse influence. Fortunately for managers and leaders, we are suggestible to positive influence. What we need to be doing is just being aware of our susceptibility to the impact that our environment has on our judgment on a day-to-day basis. We tend to see ourselves as very stable, consistent, and rational beings. And what we need to do is just acknowledge that we are vulnerable to our environment and that we are needing to be vigilant that we don't succumb to these circumstances that lead us down the road of acting against our better judgment.
0: And perhaps, uh, I mean, before I let you go, Penny, how important is it, because you spoke about uh, the 20-year-old who comes into the workplace, how important is it for us who have been enlightened through raising the bar, like what we're speaking now, to then mentor younger minds who come into the workplace about being ethical, about not being pushed into a corner by anyone or any circumstances to end up doing corrupt deeds?
1: Well, I think it's essential. And one of the most um, rewarding um, parts of my work doing ethics training in companies is when I get the opportunity to work with young, new, first-time workplace entrants. And there are some companies who will say, right, Penny, we've got a new group of recruits. Um, It's the start of the year. Please will you come and run an ethics workshop with them? And so we would have... uh, discussions about ethics about the kind of challenges that the young people will expect to face over the points of their over the um, journey of their careers and get them to anticipate tricky points um, and how they might respond to them um, and the simple would be to say right um, at some stage somebody will offer you a gift as a thank you for having done a good job or give you a gift in the workplace. could be a customer or supplier. And people start by saying, wow, that's great, good to know. And then when you unpack the challenge of accepting the gift and the ethics issues, then you move towards a point of better maturity. So that's just a small example, a lot to be earned and gained from ethics training at an early age.
0: Thank you so very much for joining us, uh, Penny. Looking forward to the next uh, session where we raise the bar.
1: Good night, Patricia and all the A-teams.
0: Well, it's time for us to go straight to the news with Greg Host. It's 11 o'clock on the dot. Good evening, Greg.